Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. Today we're talking about love. Aww. <laughs> Let's get started. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. This episode is scheduled to come out the day after Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. I hope you had a great day celebrating all of the love in your life, whether it's romantic love or family love, friendship love, pet love, self-love. I hope it was a wonderful day for you, whatever that, that means to you. But if you're like me, you understand that the 15th is the real holiday. February 15th is the real holiday. The real ones get it. Because today, if you're listening to this on the 15th, you can walk into any Walgreens, any CVS, and scoop up all of that discounted chocolate. It tastes just as good as it would have yesterday, but it's half the price. So arguably, I think it might taste a little better because I'm paying less for it, that's beautiful. It's like, buy one, get one, let's freaking go. I'm already there. Meet me there. Let's go right now. And if you can't go right now, just make sure that it's on your to-do list for today. Because I gotta tell you, we all have to observe this holiday, the day after Valentine's Day chocolate sale. Highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite days of the year, if I'm being honest. (laughs) For today's episode, we're talking about the science of love. And for this episode, I'm referencing a review article that was published in the journal Neuroscience in 2012, so just about 10 years ago. Um, And that article is linked below if you're interested and you want to check it out. So let's get into the questions for today. Um, As always, we ask questions when we want to learn things. So the questions for today, there's three of them. The first one is, what is love? You know that song? Never mind. Okay. Um, But what is love? How is love defined? And like, what is the scientific approach for studying love? The second question is endocrinologically, which... Not a word, just made it up. But I want to learn about like what hormones or chemicals in the endocrine system are involved in love. And that's outlined in this article. The third question is neurologically, so in our brains. What's functionally happening in our brains when we experience love? So those are the three questions. The first one's kind of general, just like how do we define love? The second question is what are like the chemical messengers or hormones that are involved in love? And the third question is functionally in our brains, what areas of our brain are either active or inactive when we experience love? So let's get started. The first question, what is love? What a loaded question. And let me tell you, if I knew, I would tell you but I don't. (laughs) 
love is about affection, right? It's about trust and respect and, you know, all that stuff. Like, when you like something, but you like something, like, a lot. There's a difference between like and love. Because I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. But I love my Skechers. That's because you don't have a Prada backpack. <laughs> Maybe I need to buy a Prada backpack, and then I'll be able to tell you what love is. <laughs> Everything that I've learned about love, by the way, has come from 10 Things I Hate About You. And if you didn't get that reference, go watch 10 Things I Hate About You. It was one of my favorite movies as a teen. You know what? Still today, too. Great movie. We miss you, Heath Ledger. What was I talking about? Love. Right. Okay, of course. <laughs> so what is love anyway? You know what I do whenever I have a question. I go to the scientific literature. Not me needing to go to scientific literature to tell me what love is. <laughs> but... In all seriousness, let's talk about love in the context of science. Because love is a very popular topic of interest in psychology and social science studies. In the past, in like the 20th century, you know, way back when in the 1900s, um, <laughs> which I guess it is pretty far back now, but 100 years ago, Scientists would study love as it related to marriage satisfaction because marriage was really like at the forefront of like social importance in society. And it was just basically like, well, if you're married, you're in love and, and this is what love must be. But now in the year 2022 and, you know, when this article was published in 2012, now we have a better idea that. Not everybody who experiences love has to be married, of course. So more recently, as opposed to research that was done in the 1900s, more recently studies about love have looked at love not in terms of are you married, are you not married, but in terms of, um, you know, positive affect. So things like eye contact Things like speaking positively about your partner, um, showing physical signs of love. These are all much better measurements of the feeling of love than are you married and are you happy in your marriage. Um, so this new approach to studying love, new in quotes because it's newer than 1904, um, this new approach of studying love focuses on romantic love and not marital love. A lot of people have argued and, and still may argue that love is a feeling, right? Love can't be measured. Love can't be defined biologically. It's a feeling. But with science, we've seen that all feelings, all emotions, including love, are processed in the brain. There are implications in the brain and with all emotions, including love. So just take that away. With science, all things are possible, okay? <laughs> Learn that today. <laughs> with science, we can measure love, even if you don't think that we can. We can. 
Another note that I want to mention about studying love and in a science context is that love can be studied across or like within different species as well, right? Not just humans aren't the only beings on the planet that experience love. Um, of course, some animals don't mate for life and they, you know, it's their means of reproduction aren't tied to love like humans are. So humans are a little bit different in that regard, but there are some animals who mate for life. I think wolves, if I'm not wrong, wolves mate for life. I think I read that somewhere. Don't quote me on that. That's not a for sure thing, but I think I remember reading wolves mate for life. Anyway, there animals that um, experience love, if not romantic love, then familial love, right? We've, there's a lot of animals that raise their young and have like family packs and travel in herds and groups and, and, and they all experience love and caretaking and respect for one another. Um, and those, that, those are indications of love as well. Right, so we can study other animals and how they show love and express love, and that lets us better understand like the social and potentially biological aspects of love, not just in humans, but in every species. So hopefully that answers our first question of what is love. I doubt it did. <laughs> I really, uh, I don't think that was very helpful, but listen, I'm no expert. I have no idea. If you know, let me know. Actually, don't. I really don't care. <laughs> All right, let's move on to question two. <laughs> question two, let's learn about the hormones that are involved in love. Endocrinologically, which again, fake word I made up. But let's, uh, let's learn about the hormones that are involved in love. Hormones, are, again, are like chemical messengers that kind of spread throughout our body. Sometimes they act locally. Sometimes, have I been talking way too loud this whole time? I'm just looking at the bar and I'm realizing that it might go too high. Sorry if I'm blowing out your headphones. Um, I'll try to be quiet. Not really. Okay. Wow, I'm very distracted today. I'm sorry. Welcome to my brain. It is a nightmare. <laughs> All right. So hormones can act locally in our body, but they can also act more systemically, which means that it can be more widespread and affect our whole body, not just one area. Um, so let's talk about these hormones that were covered. Uh, I think there's six, six of them. So we'll walk through the different types of hormones that are implicated, not impacted, implicated in love. So the first pair of hormones that were covered in the article are oxytocin and vasopressin. And both of these hormones have been implicated in pair bonding and love. These hormones are produced in the hypothalamus, which is like the very close to the bottom of the brain, I guess. 
um, a really small structure towards the bottom of the brain. And they're released by a pituitary gland, which is also a small part of your brain. Um, and these hormones usually function locally within the brain when we're thinking about them in the context of love. Um, there are vasopressin receptors, so like a, the vasopressin V1A receptor, and oxytocin receptors that are located in different parts of the brain, um, including parts of the brain that are involved in the dopamine reward system, which we'll talk about a lot today. Um, but areas like the striatum and the prefrontal cortex, cortex, the prefrontal cortex, <laughs> but those are like some key regions that are important in the brain's reward system. Because isn't love rewarding? <laughs> Just kidding. Am I? Who knows? Okay. They, <laughs> they, scientists have studied oxytocin and vasopressin symptom, symptoms, systems. What is wrong with me today? I know the right words in my brain, but they're not the right words that are coming out of my mouth. So scientists have studied the oxytocin and vasopressin systems, systems, words are hard. They studied these systems in prairie voles, which are, you know, small rodent-like animals. Is that fair to call them a rodent? That's what I'm picturing them to be. I'm pretty sure they're rodents. Yep, they're rodents. Oh, they're pretty cute. Google prairie vole if you have a second. They're, they look very snuggly on the Google images. Um, oh, and look at that. The suggested things are like oxytocin, monogamous, made for life, pair bonding, because as we know, oxytocin is and vasopressin are involved in pair bonding. So scientists have used prairie voles to investigate oxytocin and vasopressin systems to show that these systems play an important role in pair bonding. Like, for example, there have been a few studies that show that when they blocked these systems in uh, prairie voles, so like they were none of these hormones the voles turned into swingers, basically, okay? Like, they completely threw their partner preferences out the window. And they were just getting around and, and doing what they wanted to without regard for partner preferences. Um, which made the researchers conclude that these systems of oxytocin and vasopressin in the brain play a very important role in partner and pair bonding. It's just so funny. I mean, like, they didn't use, um, like, the term swingers. <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't shock you. They didn't use the term swingers in the article. That was me injecting a little bit of uh, Sam-splaining terminology into the findings of the article. <laughs> but I hope it made you laugh a little bit. And I'm, I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm laughing at the thought of, you know, swinger voles. <laughs> I think the term that they used in the paper was promiscuous voles. Like, how does one measure that? 
I don't actually want to know, though. That's a question that I don't want answered. I really don't want to know how they determined that, uh, you know, voles were more likely to cheat on their partners if they didn't have oxytocin. I don't know. Okay. So the next hormone that was discussed in the article is dopamine. So I kind of mentioned, or I might have mentioned, alluded to the reward system of the brain. Um, the reward system of the brain is really driven by the activity of dopamine in certain regions of the brain that have, that make you feel good, right? So think about, you know, when you, when you get to CVS today and you go down the candy aisle and you see that, you know, Kit Kats or whatever your favorite candy is, but if it's not Kit Kats, I'm going to judge you a little bit. You, you see that it's buy one, get one free and you buy that candy and you take a bite of it. And if you like chocolate, which again, if you don't, I trust you a little less. Um, you take a bite of the candy and in your brain, there's a circuit that's like a reward system where like you do something that you enjoy, that you like, that feels good. And it releases dopamine into the system. And it's sort of like a feedback of like, I want to do that again, or like, you know, open another Kit Kat because that was it was a bite-sized Kit Kat. You know, you can have more than one. All right, let me have more than one, please. <laughs> but it's basically like it it gives you this like positive feeling of like I am enjoying this. I'm going to repeat this action, whatever that action is. And the dopamine system and the reward system is actually very much implicated in addiction disorders, right? So things like drug addiction and because people who struggle with drug dependence or other addictive disorders, their their brains are telling them like, this is good. We need to do this again. We need to do this more. And um, that's, a you know, this is a conversation for another day. I'm getting off topic. But basically what you need to know is that dopamine and the reward circuits in your brain tell you when you're enjoying something, tell you when you're having a good time. Um, along with oxytocin and vasopressin, dopamine is also believed to pay, play a role in monogamous pair bonds in the prairie voles. So we're still in the prairie voles, still hanging with them. Their oxytocin and vasopressin are back in check, so they are monogamous once again. Um, <laughs> but... Researchers have found in prairie voles that both male and females develop partner preference, um, which happens when the dopamine is released in an area of the brain called nucle the nucleus accumbens. It's a really, really small part of the brain that's a key player in these reward circuits. And researchers have found that the release of dopamine in this area is very important in order for male and female prairie voles to develop this partner preference. So dopamine is another hormone that uh, plays a role in, uh, in monogamous partner preferences and developing uh, that sort of pair relationship. Another hormone that was mentioned in the review article was serotonin. Our old friend, serotonin, this is a callback 
to a previous episode. We talked about serotonin a little bit during the seasonal affective disorder or the sad season episode. If you listen to that, you might remember that serotonin, it's responsible for mood regulation. But serotonin is also implicated in love and pair bonding, as well as the psychiatric disorders that we mentioned, like the anxiety and depression, and also in obsessive compulsive disorder. In early stages of romantic love, researchers have found a depletion in serotonin levels, in plasma serotonin levels. Um, And I think that, well, the researchers argue that in early stages of romantic love, people also show similarities to behaviors in OCD, including anxiety and stress and intrusive thinking. Um, Of course, to a much lesser degree than people who have real OCD, but some of the tendencies of when you're in early stages of romantic love, like, oh my God, do they like me? Oh my God. Like, researchers are suggesting that there's a tie to depleting serotonin levels during those early stages of love and um, the behaviors that, that come with early love. So in terms of like early love, I guess, there was a study that looked at platelet serotonin transporter levels in blood. So basically taking blood samples and measuring serotonin indicators in the blood of people who had recently fallen in love. And they found that they had reduced levels of serotonin compared to controls. So compared to people who were not recently, and I think they defined it like the last six months, uh, in love. They also found that when they took those blood samples again a year later, or 12 to 18 months later, the serotonin levels or serotonin indicators in the blood were back to normal. So they were the same as the control group. So that suggests that the serotonin system is affected somehow during early love. All right. The next hormone that was covered in the review article was focused on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and cortisol, or the HPA axis and cortisol. Uh, This is another callback, because we actually talked about the HPA axis and cortisol when we were talking about the importance of rest in episode two. So you might remember cortisol is a stress hormone, and the HPA axis and the cortisol work closely together to sort of regulate stress levels. So although falling in love can be happy and exciting, this part I stole from the paper. If it wasn't obvious, you might have thought, that doesn't really sound like Sam. That doesn't sound like something Sam said. You're you're darn right. (laughs) But although falling in love can be happy and exciting, it can also be pretty stressful. Now that sounds like Sam. So (laughs) cortisol the stress hormone that's very connected to stress levels can go a little berserk when you're falling in love. Studies have shown that the HPA axis um, and the activity of the HPA axis is increased in early stage romantic love. So higher morning cortisol levels were observed in people who had recently fallen in love in the last six months. But then when looking at the cortisol levels of people who fell in love a year to two years ago, that cortisol elevation was gone. 
So they're, it's sort of like a temporary stress of early stage romantic love. In long-term relationships, cortisol levels do normalize. Um, <laughs> my notes make no sense. Hold on. <laughs> um, oh, okay, okay. So in long-term relationships, cortisol levels tend to normalize. Potentially because long-term relationships tend to decrease stress levels and increase feelings of security. So that could contribute to lower cortisol levels uh, or the lowering of cortisol levels once you create this partnership and uh, potentially decrease the stress levels that early love causes in the body. Um, oxytocin and vasopressin also do affect the HPA axis, um, and potentially they reduce the activity of the HPA axis, which in turn reduces stress and cortisol. Does that make sense, or did I get that wrong? They reduce the activity of the HPA axis, which reduces stress and cortisol. Mm. Let's go back to the videotape, and by the videotape, I mean, the paper. This is another episode that's a hot mess. Usually I write out word for word what I want to say, and I read verbatim off of a Google Doc. Um, now I'm just using bullet points and kind of doing my own thing. And maybe that's making it worse. Maybe this is a worse experience for you because you're like, this bitch has no idea what she's talking about. True. Um... But maybe it's more entertaining, and you're like, wow, this girl is so relatable. She has no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> Where am I? Um, the HPA axis. Um, oh, the hormones exert the opposite effects on the HPA axis. So oxytocin decreases the HPA axis activity, and vasopressin increases the HPA axis activity. So vasopressin can play a role in the early stages of romantic love where like, you know, you're kind of stressed and like the cortisol levels are high because the HPA axis is active. Whereas oxytocin can contribute to the decreased stress levels, um, you know, as you're bonding with this person and as you're gaining trust and security in this person. Um, so... But then the last sentence of their paragraph is how oxytocin and vasopressin influence HPA axis acti activity remains to be determined, which sounds about right. TLDR, scientists still have no idea what's going on. That's the t main takeaway from most science is like, here's what we think is happening. Here's what we're pretty sure is happening. But actually, shrug, we don't really know for sure. <laughs> okay. So that was the HPA axis and cortisol. The second to last hormone um, that was talked about in the review article is nerve growth factor, or NGF. Um, so NGF can be involved in maturation or death of neurons, but it's also been associated with chronic airway diseases and neuropsychiatric and neurodegenerative disorders. Um, 
So the NGF activates the HPA axis, which we just talked about, and it regulates stress responses. NGF factors can be, or I guess NGF, the F is for factors. NGF can be measured <laughs> in blood and in circulation to, um, you know, measure its role and its effect in things if it's, you know, activated or inactivated um, based on how much of it is in blood and in circulation. And they found that NGF in blood and in circulation is higher in those who've recently fallen in love compared to single people or people in long-term relationships. So again, this sort of idea of like a temporary disturbance in the system um, of people who are recently in love. And they also found that levels of NGF were related to the strength of feelings of romantic love. So they had people take a survey called the Passionate Love Scale, and they found that the levels of NGF in their system, in their blood, was related to the strength of the feeling of romantic love based on their uh, survey results. Um, and NGF has also been shown to stimulate the release of vasopressin, which suggests that it is also tied in to the pair bonding function that vasopressin has in early relationships. So that's the nerve growth factor. The last hormone that was mentioned in the review article is testosterone. So the te testosterone is a steroid hormone. It's released by the testes in males and the ovaries in females. So yes, all genders have testosterone expressed. Um, you might have heard testosterone as its major role is to develop secondary sex characteristics during puberty. But it's also been implicated in social behaviors like social aggression, um, infant or mate defense, and sexual intimacy. So at the beginning of a new relationship, testosterone levels have been shown to be reduced in men, but elevated in women. But again, just like the previous hormones that we've talked about, it's sort of a temporary disturbance in the system. Um, so these levels go back to normal um, or, you know, kind of the same as people who are not in relationships by about 12 months. They found, though, actually, that when partnered, partnered men and women, they've also been shown to have lower testosterone levels than their single counterparts, which is interesting. I don't know if they know exactly why that is the case, um, but that's what they said in the article, or at least that's what I got from it. So those are the hormones that they talked about that uh, influence or are influenced when we uh, experience early romantic love, early stages of romantic love. So that hopefully gave us some information about the second question, which was the endocrinologically... Uh, <laughs> I didn't even use the word that I made up right in that sentence. How does love affect us endocrinologically? That's what I meant to say. Now let's go to a real word, which is neurologically. Is neurologically a real I'm making these adverbs 
Yeah. It is, uh, in British English, it's an adverb. Concerns to neurology, with respect to neurology. That's exactly how I meant it, too. So, good job, Sam. I high five myself. Okay. Let's talk about brain activity and love. Neurologically, what's going on? Oh, this is a long episode. I'm ranting, that's why. I'm going off script. I'm talking a lot, and I shouldn't, but sorry. That's what you get. Um, <laughs> so the brain activity in love, neurologically, how does love work in our brains? There are a few select regions of the brain um, that have been shown in many fMRI or functional MRI studies to be hyperactive or activated in romantic love. Um, so these regions include the medial insula, the anterior cingulate cortex, the hippocampus, the striatum, the nucleus accumbens, and the hypothalamus. And you might have recognized a few of these regions from earlier in the episode that many of them, especially the nucleus accumbens and the striatum, are implicated in the reward circuits of the brain. So activity in these regions including in the reward circuits of the brain, are all metabolically or functionally active in romantic love. However, there are also some regions of the brain that have been shown to be deactivated in romantic love, and these include the amygdala, the frontal cortex and prefrontal cortex, the temporal poles, and the parietotemporal jun junction. Not me saying parietotemporal perfectly, but stumbling over junction. That's me smacking myself in the head. Okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the regions that is hype or deactivated in romantic love is the amygdala, which we talked about in an episode. I don't remember which one, but the amygdala is the fear processing center of the brain. So people... You know, if, if the amygdala is hyperactive, people tend to be, have more fear, be more anxious, etc. So when we see that the amygdala is deactivated in romantic love, it kind of suggests that people might feel less fear or just feel more secure in relationships. The other regions, the frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, temporal poles, and the parietotemporal junction... Those are all sort of involved in mentalizing and judgment and negative emotions, right? So sort of like thought processing um, and then sort of your mind, essentially. Um, so with these regions being a little less active, the paper suggests that maybe people are it's more difficult for people to honestly judge their romantic partner's character as well because it might be clouded by the other more active regions of the brain that the partner finds rewarding. Um, that's an interesting point. Again, they didn't really elaborate too much on the exact um, mechanism or the exact pathway by which that happens, but... It's an interesting conclusion to draw. I don't know if it's uh, it's actually been concluded that, but it's more just like a, hey, maybe this is what's happening sort of thing. Pretty interesting. Um, 
So this article and this episode, based on this article, talk a lot about romantic love. Um, But there are also other types of love that have similarities to romantic love in terms of brain function. So for example, maternal love and romantic love both activate the dopamine reward system. I think that's why moms always say like, oh, being a mom is so great. Because they're like, you know, their reward systems are active when it comes to loving their children. Personally, my reward system's activated when I have a Kit Kat. So Kit Kats are cheaper than children too, but whatever floats your dopamine boat. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so like the regions of the brain that are implicated in the reward system have hyperactivity when we're thinking about maternal love and romantic love. And there are also similarities in terms of the regions that are less activated or deactivated in romantic love and in maternal love. So those regions like the frontal and prefrontal cortex and the parietotemporal junction and all the things that I just mentioned, they have, um, they're both deactivated in both maternal love and romantic love, which some scientists suggest that shows that the romantic attachment, romantic love pathways sort of stem from the infant caregiver attachment system. And that sort of evolutionarily has developed. Somebody call Oedipus, I guess. Tell him, tell him we're sorry. He was right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there are also some differences between, as, as similar as some of the pathways between romantic and maternal love are, there are also some differences, um, particularly d- in terms of the activity of the hypothalamus. Um, there are some sig- some hypotheses that the hypothalamus is involved in sexual arousal. So it makes sense that in romantic love, the hypothalamus is has more implication and is more active, and in maternal love, it's not active. Um, there are also areas of the brain that are responsible for facial expression and facial recognition that were really active in maternal love, but less active in romantic love. And the paper mentions that this could be evolutionarily mothers needed to read their children's facial expressions to make sure that they were okay, to make sure that they were safe and that they were, you know, just to ensure their well-being by just looking at their facial expressions. Um, So that's pretty interesting as well. They have less information available about love within, like, families and within friendships, Um, But it's suggested that these same regions that are implicated in maternal and romantic love will be present there too, right? Particularly in terms of like bonding um, and reward and trust. These are all uh, networks in the brain that shouldn't be different between different types of love. You know, if you trust your best friend, like you trust your partner, like you trust your sibling, like you trust your parent... I mean, it should all be relatively similar, but at least in the current study that I looked at, they didn't really show that that was the case. So it's 
hypothesized, but uh, there hasn't, at least there's no data in this paper that suggests that that's the case. But odds are, probably so. <laughs> so yeah, that's a little bit about the brain in love and what's going on in the brain and what regions are active and all of the neurological things of being in love, um, which was our third and final question. Hopefully this properly addressed all of our questions. Uh, what is love, which probably, you know what, if anyone has an answer to that, like a perfect answer to that, no, they don't. I'm sorry. No, you don't. <laughs> you might think so, but you don't. Um, but the second question was like, you know, we learned about the chemical messengers and the hormones that are involved in love. And our third question was, how do our brains function in love? So I learned some stuff today. I hope you did as well. So to close out, I want to remind you uh, to submit questions or topics that you want to hear on future episodes. You can do that by DMing me on Instagram or Twitter at SamSplainingSci. Uh, you can also submit your questions anonymously at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. That's A-S-K. So please send me your thoughts uh, on this episode and on all of the others and anything that you want to learn more about. I really just want to hear what you think. All right, well, that's all for this week. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening, um, especially the rate and review part. That helps a lot. And it will fire off my dopamine reward system if you do that. So if you want to help me out, I'd love you for it. <laughs> Good God. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.